Right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Court of Appeals by WebEx today. Um, we have one case on our um, calendar for oral argument today for the court. Um, I'm Chief Judge Donna Stroud uh, as your panel today, and our other judges on the panel, uh, we have Judge Toby Hampson uh, sitting to my virtual right and uh, Judge Darren Jackson sitting to my virtual left. That's how we would be in the courtroom. Um, and as I said, we have one case for argument today in the matter of the adoption of BMT, and we are ready to proceed with the appellant. Good morning, Your Honor. I'm Mike Carroll, and I represent the adopted parents slash appellants in this appeal. I want to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, let me start out by saying that I've done this once before, before the Supreme Court, and uh, virtually, and I kind of liked it, but one of the things that happened was uh, the justices were kind of like waiting to interrupt me and I'd much rather be interrupted, talked over to you in private practice. You talked over me all the time, so I can't imagine you'd stop now. So please, I'd much rather answer questions than uh, just me babble for 20 minutes. So start talking if you got any questions about anything. Um, I've been doing this for 32 years. I never thought I was going to open an oral argument with a quote from Ronald Reagan, but I'm opening an oral argument with a quote from Ronald Reagan. and. The Reagan quote I want to bring to your attention is when we were negotiating nuclear deals with Russia, Reagan said, trust, but verify. And in this realm of adoption law, and particularly when you're dealing with uh, putative father's consent being required, and particularly compliance with the payment prong, because it's, it's like almost every adoption case when you're uh, testing a putative father's consent, rises or falls on whether the father complies with uh, the payment prong of the consent statute. Um, the Supreme Court in three opinions now in increasingly more explicit language has tried to make it clear that it's not enough to believe the putative father when the putative father says, I did this, I offered this, I tried to do this, she took this. Um, you have to, you can trust them for the day as long. You have to verify it. You have to have, as Bird started out 22 years ago, said, we're going to measure compliance with this adoption statute by objective criteria. And that should have been enough. But six years later in Anderson, they said, look, uh, an objective criteria consists of a payment record. And Mr. Harrell, if we could, can we sort of go back to, to Bird? Because, you know, as I read Bird, part of the need for the objective test, right, is to, is to draw that line in the sand at, at the deadline, right, the prior to the filing of the petition. Because in Bird, as, as I recall, that part of the problem was the putative father there had, had made possibly some offers or attempts uh, to provide support, but that support wasn't actually provided or received until after the petition had been filed. So wasn't part of Byrd's uh, discussion of sort of that, you know, uh, objective test was sort of adhering to the statutory deadline of when that support was to be given and I guess sort of the follow-on question from that is, I, I, I gather there's no real dispute as to the to the timing of whatever the alleged support here was provided. So to take the second question first, there's no dispute. The trial court found, 
that from August of 2018 through, uh, I believe, June of 2019, that quote-unquote support was provided. To go back to Bird, um, yes, I mean, Bird said in order to determine compliance with the consent statute, you, you trial judges, are to use objective criteria. But th that didn't, the idea that for some reason, because Bird was, a, I mean, in Bird, the contention was, I provided support, okay? In Anderson, the contention was, I tried to provide support, but I was rebuffed. And in both cases, the Supreme Court said in Bird, objective criteria, and Anderson, uh, a payment. <laughs> and so this idea that, well, in this case, because the guy said that she accepted the payments, where in other cases, the contention is the payments were rejected, is of no legal significance whatsoever. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that you still, under CHM, which is the most recent decision, have to provide an objective, independent, verifiable, precise payment record. And there's no way uh, on the planet that the evidentiary record in this case even remotely approaches that. Um, this guy testified that he provided all the support to her, but he never produced any documentation that these alleged purchases were actually going for the benefit of the mother nor did he ever produce any third-party witnesses to corroborate that he was doing this stuff. Now, why is that important? Well, the reason why that's important is because that argument that I'm making to you today is not the first time that I've made this argument to this court. And with all due respect, I was correct on what the requirements of, at the time, Byrd and Anderson were with respect to the payment record. So Mr. Hawk mentioned that I wanted to share a document, and this is old guy using technology to share a document, but let me see if I can put this on the screen. Um, so, and this is, this is, I thought a memorandum of additional authority last night. It only had two authorities in it, but one of them was this court's opinion in CHM. Now recall in CHM that what happened in CHM was the guy went to court he said, I, I saved this money for the birth mother. And I don't remember how much I saved every month, but here are some bank records showing that I saved it and or showing that I took money out. And here's my testimony. And uh, here's $3,000. And the trial judge said, you're credible. And so because I find you credible, you have satisfied the payment prong of the consent statute and so i didn't like that i appealed and this court in a 3-0 decision affirmed the trial court now the reason why I, i've got highlighted from this court's opinion the specific contentions that were made in chm to this court and so uh, you can see there specifically the morrises argue that westgate's efforts to save money for chm and the lockbox he kept in his home were legally insufficient to satisfy the statutory support requirement because 
by failing to either keep a detailed ledger of his deposits in the lockbox or subpoena records of cashback purchases he testified he made at Walmart, Westgate failed to create the sort of payment record that Morse's claim is required under Anderson. This argument is unavailing. Translation, Harold, go home. Um, on the next page of this decision, and I highlighted this because when I was getting ready for this argument, I was like, oh my gosh, th th this case is CHM. In the present case, the Morris's challenged numerous findings related to the court's determination that Westgate satisfied the statutory support requirement. My argument didn't merit a description as an argument. Apparently, I was just complaining. Complaining, for example, that Westgate's testimony that he made offers of financial support to Wood and saved money for CHM was uncorroborated by any other witness, and his bank records do not definitively prove that the cash he withdrew was deposited in the lockbox. So, so the contention I made in CHM was, look, we don't have any third-party witnesses that this guy did this. And this guy's documentary tale does not indicate whatsoever that he uh, provided the uh, or was saving this money for the benefit of the birth mother. And of course, this court broke my heart and said, based on the record before us, which include extensive testimony from Westgate regarding his efforts to set aside money for CHM in the lockbox, as well as over one year's worth of his bank records and all this evidence that he communicated with the birth mom. We conclude there is ample evidence to support the district court's determination that Westgate provided reasonable and consistent payments for the support of CHM for the filing of the adoption petition. Supreme Court reversed. Now, how is this case any different from CHM? You've got a guy that goes to court and says, I gave her all this stuff. I bought all this stuff for her. Okay. He's got no on uh, none of the records that he provides, can you determine that the stuff that he claims to have bought for her was actually purchased for or provided for? You can't tell that one iota. Um, well, do you, I mean, the, there is evidence that he purchased items that would typically be used for for a baby. Is that correct? I mean, is that's that, correct. And I, I mean, I gather some might have been at his home and and some might have been offered to to the to the birth mother, um, but isn't I, I guess overall isn't the the evidence in this case stronger than in CHM? You know, CHM you have a, you know a lockbox with some amount of money in it that you know is is undocumented, right? It, who knows when it was put in there? Who knows what it was originally intended for? That kind of thing. Here, the evidence is 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 more direct that there were purchases, right? Whether it was subway meals or or other items, and then connected with the testimony of of the father. It wasn't just generalized receipts, you know, purchases at Walmart. There, there was it was tied to specific items. Is is that is am I right on that? Or I mean, you you're the expert here. I, I want to separate the Walmart receipts from everything else because I'll, I'll get to the Walmart receipts in a moment. Okay. Um, with respect to the subway purchases and Uber rides and everything else that this guy was given credit for, those came from his bank statements and the self-created payment record. Okay. That he created after he after he objected to producing financial documentation, he comes up with this. Oh, I looked at the bank records, and by just recalling 
the fact that I made 12 subway purchases in August of 2019 versus nine subway purchases in September 2019 gives me the insight to determine that um, some of these purchases were for her, okay? But you cannot look at any of his paperwork other than the receipts, which we'll get to in a moment, and you can't tell that those sandwiches were purchased for her, her or those rides were taken for her benefit or provided for her. You can't determine any of that. And so the issue is not a strength argument because that's where we go down the path that CHM led to us, which is that, look, we're in appellate court, Harold. We don't reweigh the evidence. You know, the trial judge is the one making the determination. And so tough. The issue is not the, the quote unquote strength of the evidence. Under CHM, he is required to produce an objective, independently verifiable record. Okay. okay. Mr. Hare. Yes. Let me interrupt you since you yes. invited us to. Okay. Let me ask you a, a hypothetical question. Okay? okay. All right. So uh, a client comes to you. All right. And he's a, a guy who uh, has fathered a child. He uh, tells you he was living with mom, say, for several years. As far as he knew, they were going to stay together. He intended for this to be a you know, continuing relationship. She gets pregnant. He's thrilled. He's happy to be a dad. Um, he's, you know, he's there when the child is born, child is born, comes home from the hospital. They're very excited. Um, and then a few weeks later, mom has some sort of, there's something happens. Uh, maybe they have a fight. Maybe she has a psychotic episode. Maybe she had postpartum depression and, and just literally her, you know, she's developed a severe mental illness. Um, and she takes off, she disappears. And he has no idea where she is, can't find her. She hasn't told any of her family where she is. Uh, and he is very concerned about protecting his rights. He comes to you and says, Mr. Harold, I wanna make sure that she doesn't, you know, I'm afraid she might give this child up for adoption, lie to them and say that she has no idea who the dad is. How do I protect my rights as a dad while I'm trying to find her? What do I do? So, let me be presumptuous and add one more fact to your hypothetical, which is consistent with the facts of this case. And you client have 20 months <laughs> from the time your objection is going to be lodged until the trial occurs. Okay. Well, that's fine. I understand, but give me a shorter one. This is the person okay. who's coming to you and it's only been, maybe it's just been a few months. He's been searching, um, can't find her. What does he do? So I would say file an action. By filing an action, you have the right to have subpoena power. Subpoena from the third parties. Every bit of documentation you have to indicate that you were paying bills on behalf of yourself and your girlfriend, okay? That you paid the electric bill, that you paid the water bill, that you paid groceries on top of that. If the guy what says- if they weren't, What if they weren't living together? Well, that's fine. What, whatever you- if you contend that you provided support for her and you quote unquote don't have your receipts like this guy didn't have, subpoena them. Okay, make the effort to determine whether or not they exist. If he, what if he was actually, he says, he says, okay, Mr. Harrell, I was actually giving her a thousand dollars cash every month. Okay, I would say, well, you are happy about you, um, this woman being pregnant with your child. Yes, I was. 
Um, did you tell your parents about it? Of course I did. Did you tell your parents you would provide support? Of course I did. Bring those third parties in. Have those third parties establish that you told other people that you were doing this for them. That's, Judge Stroud, that's exactly what I argued in CHM, and that's exactly what the contention was that uh, I made in, in all these objective criteria cases. And in fact, the Supreme Court CHM, one of the things they noted was that the birth father didn't bring in any corroborative witnesses to, so, so, so even if, even if the quote, you, you try to subpoena and, and obtain and get that paper trail to indicate as the CHM Supreme Court decision says that what you contend you did was um, support for either the birth mom or the child. Okay, and you are just shut down every way to Sunday. Well, bring in your third party witnesses. By the way, that's what they did in Carr. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about Carr. Okay, and I'm not convinced Carr is good law anymore, but it doesn't matter because one of the things that the birth father did in Carr, when you get back to these receipts about buying these baby items, is the birth father had three witnesses to say, oh, by the way, he bought these baby items and he bought them to provide them for the, for, uh, the birth mother. Okay. So to go back to Judge Hansen's point or question, um, uh, the, 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 um, the, the existence of third party witnesses can be used to fill the gap. But in this case, I, he, he, he objected to the production. He was ordered to produce. He came up with this self-created document and said, here, believe me, the trial court believe him, but that document nor any of his generalized records are not independently verifiable, objective, et cetera. Now, let me get back to the receipts, okay? Because the receipts are important because I knew they'd come up, okay? Because it's like, well, Harold, there's four receipts in the record. And those were, by the way, those receipts were generated in a time span from May the 17th through June the 1st. We're talking almost nine months that this guy knew she was pregnant. But, but those receipts do show on their face the purchase of some baby items. Now, his testimony at trial reflected that he was purchasing that stuff because he thought that he was going to take the child into his home, okay? There's no evidence that he offered it to the birth mom or that he ever used it for the child because he didn't get the child, okay? So the other thing I want to share with you because I knew this was going to come up. And this there, is cited there's, there's in- no, There's no specific, well, there's, there's no sole requirement that the support be provided directly to the birth mother, correct? It could be, it's support for the yes. child or the birth mother, right? But this court has held in another context that the purchase of baby items for your own benefit does not constitute uh, consistent substantial financial support. And this court did that in the case of ACV, which is cited in my brief. So let me, let me, because that's the other one I, because I knew it was going to come up. Old guy goes two for two on the screen sharing. Okay, so um, this is the ACV decision, all right? And, and this was a termination case. It wasn't a consent case, but but the termination was based upon the, uh, uh, the birth father's failure to provide, quote, substantial financial support or consistent care. And so this guy, and he was, his rights were terminated and went up on appeal. And one of the things that he wanted credit for was, and I, you can see it all in that paragraph, but um, 
He bought baby supplies, including a stroller, crib, playpen, toys, clothing, and wash tub. And he testified, if you see it at the bottom, that when he informed the birth mother, he had some items for the baby. She said that she had plentiful amounts, so he kept the items in his home as a result. So then his, his parental rights were terminated, and uh, he went up on appeal and he said, hey, I, you know, I should have gotten credit for this stuff that I bought that was in my home. And this court said, we need not address each challenge finding individually, however, because the evidence offered by Joe shows that no direct support was given to Jan or the baby during the pregnancy. So again, how is this case any different from ACB? He bought these items in a two-week span right before birth and right after birth. By his own testimony, it was for his own use, never was offered to the birth mom, uh, never used for the baby. And look, no offense, but if you have a kid, you're going to have to get diapers for yourself. You're going to have to get a stroll. You're going to get all that stuff. That's not support for the child, okay? And that's not just me saying this. That's ACB saying it. Finally, the other point I want to make about AC, ACB is even if the court said, you know, Harold, we're going to give him credit for these receipts. Well, again, these receipts occurred in a two-week period during a nine-month period of time that he knew she was pregnant. The word consistent means regularity or steady continuity throughout showing no significant change, unevenness, or contradiction. So even if you give him credit for that two weeks, he did not make reasonable and consistent payments during the time period that he knew this birth mother was carrying his child. So um, I, I thought it was important, and I thought one of the advantages of going this route was that I could share with the court the language from the court's own decisions, which indicate that the birth father failed to meet the requirements, not just of the Supreme Court precedents, but in ACV, this court's own precedent. So uh, unless you have any other questions, I've got about eight and a half minutes or so for rebuttal, and I'll hold that for rebuttal. But I'm happy to answer questions if you've got any. Thank you. All right, there are no other questions. Move to the appellee. Good morning. Um, I want to first start with that last case Mr. Harrell provided. Um, that case is exactly like the other three cases that he relied on in his brief, Bird, Anderson, and CHM, where no support was provided to the mother. Um, that that's that should be and is, I think, the bright line. <clears throat> in our case, support was provided to the mother. The support that was provided was food, clothing, shelter, and and other items, in addition to the baby items that were purchased for the child. You the the items that were purchased were clearly for the baby. They had, and there was a third party who testified that he had purchased these items for the baby. Um, so the baby was being taken care of. The statute says that it can be provided for the mother or for the child. And there's no set time period. The other thing that it seems that, that the opposing counsel wants to argue is that there's some provision that requires that there be financial support provided to a mother, a pregnant woman to whom you're not married. There's no provision in the statutes for any type of support. There's no provision in the statutes for spousal support. There's no provision in the statutes for child support to an unborn child. So what they're, what opposing party seems to be arguing is that even though this woman is pregnant, 
and I don't know if the baby's mine or not, the father should provide financial support on a monthly basis or on some type of consistent basis. I mean, consistency, I suppose, could be quarterly um, or something along those lines, but some type of support regularly. The statute says the mother or the child or both. In this particular case, the father provided support for both. Um, and I didn't say this to start with, but if you have questions, please interrupt me because I don't want to wait until the end and have no time to answer your questions. But well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you up on that uh, that invitation. And, you know, it 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 it, it strikes me and, and Mr. Harold can correct me on rebuttal if I'm if I'm mischaracterizing or misstating the argument. But I, I think there's a concession. That father at least presented some evidence, right, of of his his efforts to provide support to the the birth mother and or the child. I think the real issue in this case, and the issue that sort of is set up by Bird and Anderson um, and CHM, is what what is the level of of evidence? What is the, what is almost the the standard of proof that has to be met? And, and and as I understand the argument, it's it's that the Supreme Court has has set a really high bar for that standard of proof. And you know, I, I'm I'm struggling to find an analogous situation uh, in in which you know a, a trial court isn't simply allowed to weigh the credibility of a of a single witness, and that constitutes sufficient evidence to support a trial court's findings. On appeal, but you know it. I mean, we're we're looking at the language of those cases. So, you know, can can you articulate for me how the evidence that you presented meets the standard uh, set, you know, by by CHM, Bird, Anderson, or I guess the alternative question is, since I'm asking compound questions to everybody today, um, is 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 you know what is the correct interpretation of those cases? Um, okay, now there's several several questions there, and I'm just going to have to talk. Okay, um, the my interpretation, and I believe the correct interpretation of all of those cases is if you provide no support to the mother or the child prior to the filing of the petition for adoption, then there you you have to show that you made these efforts that you provided this money that you set aside in some way and that that other than just opening a lockbox which is what they did in CHM you have to show when you put money into it or somebody else has to know that you did it prior to the time that the petition for adoption was filed because in the that was the issue in CHM there was no evidence that it was done prior to the time that the petition for adoption was filed. So all of the receipts that were provided for the support for mother and for child in this particular case were from prior to the time that the petition for adoption was filed. Um, and if the court is going to make it so that any support that you provide prior to the time that the adoption is filed, that you have to have receipts for, no parent will ever meet that burden. No father will ever meet that burden. 
Mr. Um, Harold suggested that you go back and subpoena. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think a subpoena to Subway is going to get you anything. They don't keep receipts of when you ordered or where you ordered or where they sent food or when they provided food. So um, since a part of this case relied on, on food, food that was delivered to the mother and transportation by Uber, they don't show in Uber who was transported or where they were transported. Well, they might show where they were transported. They don't show who was transported. They also, there's, there's no way to go back and build a record except through the bank records that show that there was some support that was provided. Um, there was support that was provided. The receipts that show that prior to or just before and just after the birth of the child, there were significant items that were purchased for the child. In addition to that, one of the things that, that I think has been thrown out here, at least by Mr. Harrell and maybe others, is that the standard is some type of um, child support guideline that should be paid during the course of the mother's pregnancy or afterwards. I know that there was a case, well, that you referenced at least in the case of, um, I believe it was in Anderson where you referred to um, a case called, um, I'm sorry, that, that name escapes me, Lilick, I believe it is Miller versus Lilick. Um, there was a reference to that, and what it said was that that could be a way that the court determines what sufficient support is, but it, that's not a standard, that's not an absolute, that is not, um, that is only one way that it could be determined. And the term, the determination was that between the time that the child was born and immediately before, he, he provided, the father in this case, provided guideline child support. So, he met the burden with regards to providing for the child. So if he's provided for the child, he prior to the time that the adoption was filed. Um, in addition to that, he did a lot of other things. He filed a court action. He, he did that, I, I believe, after the petition was filed. But he did um, try to um, illegitimate the child. He did at least file with the Tennessee Register which um, according to the Tennessee Register says, once you're on the registry, your consent's required. Um, he did that. He filed and it was on the registry as of June the 21st. He, the, the, the petition was not filed until June the 27th, but he provided the support. He did what he could to be named the father. And he, in essence, um, he didn't live with her, but he, he lived with her for at least half of the week every week. So how was he to provide support or proof that he paid for something over and above what he would have paid for himself? He provided for her in all ways, food, clothing, transportation, and um, other necessities. And then he provided for the child. So the, and did that answer your question about what the standard was? Because it seems to me in all three of those cases, the reason that they they required something other than a the receipts or the information the the showing of what what was provided before the petition was filed is that nothing was actually given to mother and the statements there and even the evidence of when he would go out in the middle of the night to get diapers um, showed that he was providing for the child while the child was in the mother's home uh, prior to the time that the adoption 
petition was filed or that the child was transferred to adoption. So uh, sort of following up on that, this, this, this question seems to, for, for me, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with how much of a question, this is a question of fact and how much it's a, it's a question, question of law. Right. And, you know, because in, in most cases, you know, an appellate court would give great deference to a trial court's credibility determination, right? Even if, you know, you had 50 witnesses on one side and only one witness on the other side and the trial court finds the one witness more credible, you know, we don't go back and reweigh that. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's, is that kind of what's happening in in Anderson and CHM? Is it is it almost more like a, a a jurisdictional finding of fact, wherein the appellate courts kind of do go back and reweigh the evidence and review those de novo? I, I'm just trying to figure out where the line is here between a question of fact and conclusion of law in this in 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 these types of cases in this determination. Well, um, and in all of those cases, or at least in CHM and in um, Anderson, there there was um, evidence to the contrary, and um, because there were witnesses that testified um, in direct opposition to what the um, father had said um, in his testimony, in um, CHM, um, the the issue um, really didn't relate to whether or not he. It seems, in my estimation, that it didn't relate to whether or not he actually provided support or offered support. It was as to how it was accumulated, um, and that was a um, that question surprised me because. Um, but there is no evidence, as far as I know, from the record that was in the court case, at least that he um, had in some way contributed during the course of the time that either the mother was pregnant or right at the time the child was born. Um, and I think the issue there was um, the timing and the fact of whether or not it had been contributed prior to the filing of the petition. So that's very different from what we have here because clearly all of the the items purchased were before the filing of the petition. Um, and in Anderson and in Bird, the issue um, was that there was no support provided to the mother. Now, if, if what the court is going to require is a verifiable and um, consistently with the time that it was done, record of and receipts for everything that's purchased for the child or the mother, no father is ever going to meet that standard because no father, especially if they're continuing a relationship, believes that they are somehow going to have to come up with receipts later. Just doesn't happen. So no father will ever meet that standard if that's what it is. If there's support that's provided, and then that seems to me to be the bright line or the line. Was there support provided? If there were um, items purchased for the child prior to the filing of the petition, if there were um, receipts for food or for transportation or for anything else from prior to the time that the petition was filed, then that seems to me to be the line as to whether or not there has to be some type of verifiable um, record of the um, 
purchases made as to when and who they were purchased for. Because it, 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 it does seem to me at some level, a, a court almost has to rely, at, you know, to some extent, on testimony or evidence of a, from the putative father. Um, if, and I'm, I'm saying putative father, but you, you know what I mean? Um, the, you know, <laughs> if for authentication purposes, if nothing else, right. And for, you know, where these receipts come from, where these, where these records come from. So, um, yeah. So, <laughs> so how do we, how do we weigh how much a, a trial court can rely on, on, on the father's testimony? Well, if the father's testimony, well, the father's testimony, if he is a credible witness, and I don't know if it came through in the records that you received, um, we had to have an in-person hearing because opposing counsel believed that his credibility would be an issue. Our court found, and Mr. Harrell uh, put in his brief, that the judge believed what this, this father was saying, that he was a credible witness and in all cases, testimony is a part of the evidence. Testimony is a big part of where everything comes from in family law. There are not always, especially in, in when you're talking about child issues, there are not always um, individual pieces of paper that you can present to the court to say, she came to my house X number of times. Unless you have a video camera and you're going to provide the the information from a video camera that the person actually attended at your house at X time, then you're not going to be able to show that. And so I think in this case, that's something very similar. The actual testimony of the parent is important. Um, the father in this case, who is the biological father, there's no question about that. If he's the biological father and his testimony is, is provided, then there has to be some credence, some level of of um, authority that is given to his testimony. He testified consistently about what he did. He provided the receipts that he could find, and he testified about the relationship that they had, which would mean that he wouldn't have kept any of those receipts. Although quite honestly, and I pointed out in my brief, whenever you order online, you might not even get a receipt for these types of things. So how do you provide receipts in that type of scenario? What this seems to me that Mr. Harrell is requesting is some type of proof that doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist on a regular basis in our current world. Our current world is that people do things through apps. They do things through their phone. They don't necessarily have documents that they will be able to keep forever that they can, just in case they need it to support a, in this type of scenario. So to provide the documents that he did, I thought was um, substantial because the only thing you can rely on are your bank records. The only thing you can rely on are what few receipts that you can come up with. And that's what he did. One of, one of the other uh, points Mr. Harold raised in, in his brief, and I don't, I don't know that we really got to it, uh, in, in his argument today, perhaps he'll come back to it, is this, is, is the additional argument uh, that the trial court's finding that the, the, the support, uh, I'm going to botch the technical language, but um, what was reasonable, 
right? In light of uh, 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 your clients sort of income and, and resources, right? Was it, was it reasonable? Was it sufficient in, in, in light of the resources? Um, and, and the argument is basically the trial court didn't really make any findings as to, to income or ability to pay that kind of thing and sort of just made the ultimate finding, right? That the, the, the support was reasonable. Um, you know, we, we, we speak to, to that. Uh, a little bit. I mean, was there evidence of of income and ability to pay that the trial court uh, can consider? Well, um, absolutely. There was evidence. There was evidence as to where he worked, as to how many hours he worked, and what he was paid while he worked. In addition to that, both opposing counsel and I presented at trial competing um, child support worksheets that were referenced, um, I believe, either in the order or certainly in the. Um, transcript that reported that these two that were similar to each other um, provided the information that she needed to show dad's income. Um, there was evidence that mom was on um, disability, that mom was not um, and receiving Medicaid and other things, and so that she had no real income. So the child support worksheet was provided to the court based on those things that are all in the record, that were all part of the, um, the testimony of, of the, my client. In addition to that, um, he provided his tax returns. He provided other information that would show what his actual income was. And there was a lengthy, um, I think if you read the entire record, um, conversation between opposing counsel and the father as to what his actual income was and how he arrived at the numbers that he put on his tax return. So there was ample evidence um, that the court could, and, pro and I suppose did, take into consideration with regards to the income of the father and how they would arrive at the, a number that would be sufficient for at least after the child was born. Okay, hearing no further questions. Um, I think that um, in this particular case, and, and, and in the law in general, if a father is going to be a father, he shouldn't have to keep every single receipt for every single thing that he has purchased since he found out that the mother was pregnant. Um, if that is the requirement, and that seems to be the requirement based on what Mr. Harrell has presented and based on perhaps even CHM, but if that's the case, then no father will ever meet that requirement. And so there will be a constitutional challenge at some point because the fathers will not be allowed to um, be fathers to this child. Their consent will not be necessary. In this particular case, the finding was that his consent was necessary because he met all three prongs. He continued to keep communication with the mother he provided um, financial support to the mother, and he um, took the responsibility and acknowledged that he was the father of the child even before the birth of the child, and certainly afterwards when he filed his petition um, and with the state of Tennessee. So he he did all met all three three prongs. Um, his burden was met by providing the the testimony, the receipts, the bank statements 
his tax records, everything else that he could provide to the court to show that he had provided significant support to this mother throughout her pregnancy and for the purposes of the child. Now, Mr. Harrell indicated that these items that were purchased went to his home and not to the mother's home. That wasn't the testimony of the father, although some items were in father's home. The record reflects that the items, at least a big part of these items, were presented to mother and were used in mother's home. The other items were in father's home because father was going to take custody of this child. Um, but he bought them for the child. And the statute says for the child. So these were purchased for the child. They could have been purchased for any other reason. Um, they weren't purchased for some other child or some other mother or um, something else. There was no evidence that any that they were purchased for anything other than for this child. So he purchased items for the child immediately before and immediately after the birth of the child that were for the benefit of the child and were to be used by the child. And that's um, the statute says for the mother or the child or both. And he purchased for the child immediately before and after and provided support to the mother before the birth of the child. And certainly all this was before the filing of the petition. Which met the statutory requirement that it be provided to the mother and or the child prior to the filing of the petition in all the cases. In uh, Bird, I believe there was a purchase of a hundred dollar gift card, and there was or or money order, and uh, maybe some baby clothes. But they weren't sent until four days after the birth of the child, and the child was the adoption. The petition for adoption was filed the day after the birth of the child, so there was no support before. In our case, all the support was from before, or all the support, all the support that was a part of our hearing was from before. Then we had the um, Anderson case where nothing was provided because they wanted to. Um, he offered, I'm sorry, he offered something through the school, perhaps, but she didn't accept it. She rejected it. And so there was no financial support of any type provided, no gifts for the child, no anything else. In CHM, there was no nothing that was actually provided to the mother, but he came up, he had a lockbox that had money in it. But the um but all, there was that wasn't provided. There was nothing provided until after the after the petition for adoption was filed. That's the way that that there's a difference. In this case, it's much more close to KAR where the father provided significant support prior to the birth of the child. KAR was um, not reviewed. Discretionary review, excuse me, review was denied. So um, it is the most the case most similar to the facts that we have today which show that there was financial support in some way. What was It doesn't have to be even money paid to the mother. It can be things provided for her. It does not have to be actual cash. And in this case, it was food, clothing, shelter, and transportation. All those things were provided for the mother before and the other items that were purchased for the child. I'm sorry, um, I, I, I look at all the judges and it looks like they have questions, but I don't see any. And so um, I guess what I have to say is this is a three and a half year old child now. 
Um, father last saw her when she was about um, two weeks old, three weeks old. And he desperately wants his child to be in his home. He provided the support. He was in a relationship. He wants his child back with him. And that's what we're asking the court to do is find that his consent is necessary because his consent is necessary because he provided, he met all three prongs. Um, there is nothing else that he could do at the point that he found out that the mother had somehow just given this child away um, that he could come up with to show that he had provided all of these um, support, um, which is the, the biggest issue, I guess, Mr. Harrell. Um, indicated that he wasn't wasn't contesting any of the other two prongs. But for the support prong, he provided the evidence that he could that he had that showed that he paid it. He also had one additional witness who came in and said, yes, I know that he provided these things. I know he bought these things. I saw these things or at least some part of these things. And so yes, they existed and yes, they were for the child. Um, they had no other witnesses but he provided all of the information that he could, all of the testimony that he could. And um, unless this is some type of well-publicized um, law that says that there has to be a record every single time you purchase something for the mother or the child, and you must keep every single receipt, then no father is going to be able to provide or will be required to um, provide consent for an adoption unless they are married to the mother. And that that um, provides an outcome that was not anticipated by the Bird Court. Um, the Bird Court indicated that um, that we ought that we also believe that the General Assembly did not intend to place the mother in total control of the adoption to the exclusion of any inherent rights of the biological father. And if that's the case, then, then there has to be an ability, a way to show that they, have, they met all three prongs without having each individual receipt for what you provided, without having receipts for cash given to mother, even though cash might've been accepted. In our case, it was accepted at times. Um, and so there has to be, that. this is the only way um, in order to do it, that bright line is, did they provide support prior to the time that the adoption petition was filed or not? If not, then there has to be some additional way to show that they either plan to prepare, plan, plan to provide, tried to provide, or somehow um, had a, a record of the, the money that was placed into an account. Um, there, there should be more than one way to be able to do that, but the only way that that was reported through, I thought through dicta was that you could, um, put money into an account and save that for the child. Um, and so, but, it, but the bright line is, was support provided prior to the time that the petition was filed or was it not? And if it was not, then where's your record? Um, in this case, support was provided, support was provided in substantial support based on the, um, the assets that, or the income that my client and the opposing party had. It was consistent, and at the time that the child was born and just immediately prior to, it was significant. 
um, and it met the requirement for the support prong. So I would ask the court to um, uphold the district court's ruling. They were the ones that that heard the witness, that determined the credibility, that found that everything that he said was credible, and that um, and asked that you find that um, his consent is required for an adoption. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for your argument. Um, okay, Mr. Harrell. Let's see, we'll go back to you for rebuttal. And uh, right before you even start, let me, um, cause you've got a little extra time um, and we're in rebuttal now so we can start the clock. There we go. Um, I have another hypothetical for you. Okay, let me, let me flip, let me flip the hypothetical. Okay, so this time it's a lady who comes to you and she's very pregnant near giving birth. She's in a relationship with the dad, has been for a while, but she has decided that she wants to end that relationship and she has decided she wants to give that child up for adoption. She knows the dad will strenuously object to adoption and that he would want the child. Um, and there's nothing about him that would make that, you know, he's certainly not unfit or anything like that. Um, now, she's planning to go to another state right after the child is born as soon as she feels physically able to drive there. Uh, to place the child for adoption. And um, so she wants to know how can she ensure that dad cannot interfere with that adoption uh, so that it can go through. Now, he's been providing for her. He's been buying stuff for her and the child, but he's a very financially responsible fellow. He follows the Dave Ramsey plan. He uses cash. He doesn't believe in credit cards. He doesn't believe in debit cards. So he uses cash. Um, he's been paying it, but um, she wants to make sure that she can just make him disappear. What do you tell her? I tell her when she goes to the other state, not to let this guy know where she's at. Um, and uh, to have, if the child is going to be placed for adoption, to have the adoption petition filed as quickly as possible. I also tell her, because it's my ethical obligation to tell her this, that if she is subpoenaed and if she's subject to the subpoena power of the North Carolina court, she's going to have to testify truthfully that this guy regularly provided cash for her. So I would point out to her that even though she wants this guy to be out of her life, that there's no guarantee that the guy's going to be out of her life because she's already admitted to me that the guy paid her cash and that she has to testify truthfully if she falls under subpoena and she's called in to corroborate this guy's testimony that he paid cash. By the way. So, well, before you go, I'm sorry. One thing, sure. and this has always bothered me. So she, she's like, just like this mom signs an adoption petition saying she has no idea who that is. So she's willing to lie on the adoption petition. She's already told you that. She's just going to claim she doesn't know. I, I, well, Judge, with all due respect, we don't know what a testimony would have been because they made no effort to get third-party witnesses to corroborate his story. When 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 Miss Lindley... What about, tell me about the fact that the mom... We know the mom lied on the petition for the adoption, saying, I have no idea who dad is. Is that a problem? I mean, that always seems disturbing it's, to me that the mom is committing perjury. It, it, well, I mean, with all due respect, if you go through the history of these adoption cases, it is not uncommon for birth mothers to make misrepresentations about birth fathers. Okay. Yes, and, and it's also not uncommon for those birth fathers' rights to be terminated or for their consent to adoption not to be required. And so the reason why we require objective criteria in these kind of cases, because Judge Hampson's like, well, don't we just defer to 
the findings of fact? Well, that's what you guys did in CHM. And the answer is no. I mean, Ms. Lindley's complaint is not with me. Ms. Lindley's complaint is with the Supreme Court, and for that matter, the Supreme Court Anderson Byrd, which said, as a matter of law, is there an objectively verifiable payment record? As a matter of law, is there a corroborative payment record? That's that's a legal determination for the court. That's not a factual determination. So, so as, as Judge Hampson asked you, our standard is not the usual standard of reviewing whether or not there's evidence to support the findings is actually a de novo review? You're the, no, I, I've already conceded that his testimony in and of itself supports the findings. The, the issue for this court is under the criteria established by our Supreme Court, including CHM, does his evidence constitute a legally sufficient payment record to show that he met the standards of the of the payment prong, and the answer to that is clearly no. It just, I mean, there's no difference. I mean, the, the birth father in CHM testified for a day about this money he put in this lockbox. This guy testified for a day, even though he had purchases to Subway before, during, and after the time span, and all these other purchases, he testified that, oh, well, I, I distinguish these purchases from these other purchases. How does he do that? When, when Ms. Lindley says, oh, well, a subpoena wouldn't show this or a subpoena wouldn't show that, they didn't subpoena anybody. They didn't. They had 20 months. to. I, the, the, the standard is not nothing or all the receipts. The standard is a legally sufficient payment record. And when you look at the language of CHM, this guy's self-created payment record where he just willy-nilly says, oh, well, this was for her. I mean, Ms. Lindley's arguing that this case doesn't fall in the CHM bucket because in this case, the guy testified, well, she took what I gave her. And in other cases, they, uh, the birth father said she didn't take what I gave her. That can't be the distinct, because then every birth father is going to come in and say, oh, yeah, we don't need the birth mother here. I gave her this stuff. Give me credit for it. So that's not the standard. That's a, So, yes, the question for this court is, does this guy's evidence, well, there's two questions. I'll get to Judge Hanson's question in a minute. Um, first, does this guy's um, uh, evidence constitute a legally sufficient payment record under CHM, and it's not independent, it's not sufficiently verifiable, there's no indication on the records, with the exception of the receipts, that um, any of this stuff actually went to birth mom or child, okay? But the other issue, because Judge Hanson brought it up, so I'm going to jump on it because i got two and a half minutes, is even if you find, if you say, Harold, we're going to give him, we're going to find that these receipts over this two-week period, over the nine months that he knew she was pregnant, that that does constitute a legally sufficient payment record. Well, there's two problems with that. First off, the first problem, as I pointed out in ACV, is he never released the mean of the stuff to birth mom. You know, I mean, he bought this stuff because he thought he was going to get the kid. And in ACV, you say, uh, birth father, you don't get credit for that. But the other problem is, is that there are no findings on the record, none, as to what his finances were or his resources were to permit you to make a determination of reasonableness and consistency. Judge Hampson asked the question, quote, was there evidence of income and resources? Yeah, he testified. He testified a lot of stuff. But um, the evidence of income and resources did not make it. The court made no findings as to what his I mean, we don't know what this guy's income was. We don't know what his resources were. And as as CHM says, 
you make a determination as to reasonableness of payments based upon the putative father's income and resources. So even if you're inclined to give him credit and say, we're going to give him credit for these receipts here. We don't care if it's only for two weeks out of nine months. We think this is a verifiably ejectable record. I'm like, okay, fine. How, how do we know that that was consistent with his income and resources? Because you can't tell it from the court order. And he had the burden, okay? And what my folks, just like every other set of parents in a contested adoption case, sit there mutely because they don't have any ability to advance the ball whatsoever. Between this putative father and the adopted parents, he is in the far superior position. He had the advantage, by the way, of instead of having to go to court in a month like I did in Anderson or go to court four months like I did in CHM. I mean, COVID was horrible. Don't get me wrong. But one thing it did was it gave him 20 months to get his act together. He went to court. He talked. He produced a self-produced record. And that's not sufficient. So my time's about out unless you have any more questions. I really appreciate the time and opportunity to speak with the court today. Well, does anyone else have any questions? Because uh, we sort of ate up his rebuttal with that. Okay. That's fine. Uh, all right. Questions are great. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you all very much for your arguments. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we will conclude this session. Thank you. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned.